Welcome to the Sober Bartender Podcast. I'm your host, Brandi Kelly. Today is an exciting day. Today, I am going to share my story. I really hope you get something out of it. It's been quite a ride. Uh, my story starts, I was, uh, I was born in the LDS Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1984. Um, my parents had me very young. My mom was in high school and uh, they got married shortly after I was born and divorced shortly after that. So um, having two households was a little challenging, but you know, not completely out of the normal. When I was nine, we moved to Laughlin, Nevada, which is on the Colorado River uh, border of Arizona. And uh, that is where, for the most part, I grew up. So my first drink was around nine years old, eight or nine years old. Um, I can clearly remember, and mind you, this is not including my grandpa giving me sips of his course so that I he could see my bitter beer face. Um, but the first time I intentionally took a drink, I was pretty young. And I remember my stepdad had a bottle of Cuervo on the fridge in our apartment. I didn't, I don't remember being told like, you know, don't drink that or do. It was just, it was out of my reach and I knew I shouldn't have it. So I would get home from school and there was a time where I was there by myself until, I don't, yeah, like somebody came home shortly after I got home. But I remember climbing up onto the counter and getting the bottle down and pouring some Jose Cuervo into a glass. And I drank it and I got really, really sick. But it was like, I was so excited about the idea of what I shouldn't have. Fast forward, you know, a lot of people live between Bullhead City and Laughlin because they're, you know, 10 minutes, 10 minutes away from each other, just over the bridge. I was living in Bullhead City when my mom and my stepdad just decided to divorce. And that was a really pivotal time for me because I was very angry. So I didn't really start lashing out until I was about 12 years old. Um, it was very apparent that I was just angry. I was depressed. I was confused you know, between hormones and parents' divorce, I just, um, I really went deep into the other direction. So I start, I mean, I started running around with, you know, the, the rougher crowd. Um, I started experimenting with drugs. I started drinking, but it didn't, it didn't really grab a hold of me. Like I was able to I was able to do it like socially, like I wanted to be accepted and I definitely wanted to change the way that I think and feel. And that has been a theme throughout my life. So I started around 12 years old using drugs, alcohol, people, um, trouble, whatever I could do to just escape myself. You know, I had my mom at home who always offered like a, uh, she always offered love. She always offered a safe place. Um, and so a big theme in my life, I always see, you know, the fork in the road and one way is like light and love. And the other way is like a dark, scary 
jungle and I've just always veered towards the dark and really took a, taken the, the harder road. Um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, my, my path wasn't because I didn't have the option to have a better life. I just always chose the, the more difficult path. You know, through junior high and high school, I did get into some trouble. I got arrested for minor consumption of alcohol. Um, you know, I had to do some community service, broke my mom's heart over and over. Um, we had a really, really rocky relationship through that time. I was, I was a scary person. Like I was hospitalized for anxiety and depression around 13 years old. Um, I just, I wasn't willing to accept any help. I wasn't willing to do any work. I just, I just kind of pushed everything good for me away. And then I just really embraced anything that, that I felt wasn't like anything that I knew kind of wasn't good for me. Like I only wanted that. So I did graduate high school and had a series of, of jobs and, you know, had, boyfriends. And it was at 19 years old that I got invited to work at a place called the Inferno in Bullhead City, Arizona. And it was the hottest bar in town. And there's air quotes there because (laughs) it, it was something. So I went to work at the Inferno and there was no real training or anything. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to drink. You can serve in the state of Arizona at 19, but you can't um, drink until you're 21. So I started drinking when I was off work, you know, it was kind of the, the people that went in there were, you know, kind of rough, like, I don't know, they were good old boys. Um, but still the roughest customers that I ever had, like, you know, now if somebody took their glass and they pounded it on the bar because they wanted another drink, I would definitely throw them out. But in my first bartending job, that was a tournament of endearment. And that was, you know, that's just the way that it was. So I do, looking back, I see that there was issues in my drinking even back then because I would be off work and I would be just, I lived in a single wide trailer. I should include my mom and my family moved, um, they moved to Hemet, California while I was still living in Bullhead. So I had my own trailer that I rented from uh, my grandma, Laura, and it had, you know, a fenced yard and I had a dog and, you know, life was all right. But I was like binge drinking. I would drink and drink and drink till I blacked out. But I didn't do that every day. But I would, I remember driving my car and I couldn't really steadily drive. So I would just rev all the way down and then kind of coast. And it was a smaller town and how I never... Never got a DUI there. I have no idea. But while I was working at the Inferno, I met this big biker dude who, uh, you know, he looked different than anybody that I knew. You know, he looked exciting. He looked dangerous. And that same mentality of when I was a kid of like, I want to escape myself. I want an adventure. You know, I want to go explore the unknown. So after about five months of dating, he kind of told me like, you're way too cool for this trailer. Like, do you want to, do you want to go live in, in Scottsdale with me? And I was like, yeah. So I jumped on the back of his motorcycle. I should include that he's in a motorcycle club. I took off with this Hells Angel, you know, not knowing where he lived. I had never been there before. I just, I left my apartment, my dog, my car. I called my best friend, Bobby. And I was like, Hey, the keys are under the mat like just left my car in a casino parking lot and off I went. 
So I moved to Scottsdale and this is 2004 and already in that time, um, you know, drinking like every weekend, not necessarily every day, blacking out pretty often. Um, you know, I start bartending. I of course lie about the fact that I'm not 21 because I know that legally I can serve in the state. So I'm bartending and I'm going in, I'm hanging out and drinking in my off time. And I did turn 21 while working there and they were not very happy about that. Um, you know, life wasn't, wasn't too bad. It was like, everything was kind of an adventure. I was really kind of struggling with being in a town where I didn't know anybody and drinking kind of helped me bond in that way. So two years later, 2006, my then boyfriend wants to move to Las Vegas. And, you know, Las Vegas is about an hour and a half from where I grew up. So I'm like, sounds good. You know, I'm always up for whatever. I'm still kind of up for any adventure, except now I do things uh, a little differently. But we moved to Las Vegas in summer of 2006. And I'm bartending again. I have you know, a little bit of an issue getting a job, but not too bad. Um, and there was like from 2006 to, I don't know, I want to say 2014, things really escalated. So like I ended up landing in a bar that I absolutely loved. I was working at Copper Keg St. Rose. You know, my, my home life was a little chaotic. Um, you know, I was kind of just casually using drugs, but not, you know, not like regularly. I didn't really consider myself to have a drug problem, but my drinking definitely increased because, you know, while working, it, it wasn't allowed, quote unquote, but it wasn't, it wasn't totally against the rules to do shots while you're working. So it would be pretty normal for me to have seven to 10 shots in the course of my shift, but I was on my feet. I was moving around. So that was no big deal. But then by the time I get off work, I've already got, you know, a halfway decent buzz and then it's my time to drink. So I got, I got into the habit of just really drinking regularly. But during that time, like I was, you know, I was boxing, like I was training for half marathons in 2012, I competed in a fitness America pageant and like, I didn't really cut out the drinking for any of that, except there was six weeks before the fitness America where I did not drink because I really wanted to show good on stage. Like I did, it was like a bikini bodybuilding show. So um, I really applied myself. I didn't place, but I was really proud of myself for just adhering to like a really strict regimen and following through. But I missed my alcohol. Like I really, really missed it. I had a great showing for my coworkers and my customers, like my friend group, like they showed up and they, I had the biggest cheering section and they all had ping pong paddles with my face on them. And when I got off the stage after judging, everybody had either a mimosa or a shot of vodka because I could finally have a drink. And like, that seemed so normal to me. <laughs> so um, yes, after that show, that was the 2012 show. I, I just wanted flour. I wanted cheese and I wanted booze. And I overindulged in all of them. Within hours, I was puking and rallying. Like I was just, I was, I had like three different kinds of sangria, everything with flour on the menu at this little, um, at Firefly in Vegas, a tapas place. But that wasn't alarming to me. Like that, being a bartender, that just seemed normal. 
right? Like I set goals, I achieved the goals, and then I deserved a party. My next show was a year or two later, and I did not have as much success. Also during that time, I was experimenting with different hormones. Like I tried, uh, I think it was, I think I tried injecting testosterone. Um, I was on like human growth hormone for quite a while. Like I was, I was definitely willing to try anything. The second show, I would not cut out the drink. I limited it, which I felt I, I should get like a gold star, but it definitely didn't cut in my abs. I didn't show up as, as tight or as toned, even though I was working out, you know, an hour in the morning or two hours in the morning and an hour at night, I would get off work at midnight and I would go do an hour of cardio, but I would do it with four or five shots in me. So that was really disappointing. But also during that time, you know, there was my home life and there was a lot of trying to, trying to balance. Like definitely it was like a fun lifestyle. It wasn't, it wasn't all bad, but it was like, you know, we party when we party, but then it's time to get back to life. And I had a really hard time getting back to life. Like life was still a party for me and I didn't really have an off switch. So instead of acknowledging that or addressing that or looking within to see what I could do differently, I just hit it. I just lied about it. I chose to do whatever I could to kind of protect what I thought was necessary for me, which was uh, by about 2013, around there, that was, you know, like doing little bumps of Coke at work and drinking heavily. So by, um, yeah, but I think it was 2013 or 14, um, my then boyfriend had pretty much had enough. Um, I really felt like I was a victim. I felt like I was being abandoned. I felt like he was giving up. And in reality, I was not willing to look at myself and look at the fact that, A, that probably wasn't a very healthy relationship for me to begin with. Um, but B, I wasn't a healthy person. I wasn't being a healthy partner. Like, I was always hiding drugs. I was lying about doing drugs. I was drinking, ex uh, like, heavily and excessively. excessively. Um, you know, there's a, a, a rideshare service called Designated Drivers in Las Vegas. Barry and his wife are angels. They, you, you basically call a number and they come and pick up you and your car. So it's a husband and wife team. And then they do partner with somebody else. But for the most part, I did get Barry and his wife, but they come and they pick up your car and one drives you and your car. And then the other follows and then they get your car home. So I probably used that service just to get home from work. I don't know, probably four nights a week for almost a year. Um, and I, there was cameras that we had on the outside of my house. So I would have them drop me off on the corner and then I would drive into the driveway so that my then boyfriend wouldn't know, you know, that I couldn't drive myself home safely. You know, when he just confronted me and said, like, we're on different paths, like you obviously want to do that and I don't want to do that. Um, so just go do that and I'm going to go do what I want to do. I like. I went into the most toxic mode, like threatening suicide, you know, just swearing up and down and all around that I, you know, that I would change, you know, and, you know, this started out when I was 19, but at this point I'm 30, you know, I never really, like I improved outwardly, but inwardly I, I didn't ever do anything, you know, big or good for myself. I really, I really started to crumble 
So I talked him into staying for another year, despite him wanting to go. And that was the most toxic year. I don't know. I don't want to say the most toxic year, but that was one of the most toxic times of my life. You know, he didn't want to be there. I could feel that. So I was like desperate for the approval and the affection. And uh, and he was really resentful to me. So I won't go into depth about what went on, but it wasn't good. And I still continued. I did not keep any of my promises. I still continued to outwardly try to present what I thought was expected of me while inwardly, like I was still drinking. I would like, I was, oh, I was hiding cigarettes too. Um, I really liked to try to get away with things. Like I, I liked to still do what I wanted, but to try to tell you that I was doing what you expected. Um, so in October of 2014, I had then been at Copper Keg St. Rose for seven years. I had been, um, dating the biker dude for, for 11 years. And, um, and he wanted to move to California. He wanted to be out there. There was things that he wanted to pursue. And he strongly suggested that I stay in Las Vegas and just do my thing. I owned my home at that time. Um, it was not in both of our names. It was in my name and I had bought it for a really good deal. So he really strongly urged me to stay. And I insisted that I go because I could not fathom losing this relationship, despite it being extremely toxic on both ends. So he packed up and he moved and I sold the house and I packed up and I followed him and it was bad. <laughs> so I moved to, um, I moved to Lake Elsinore, California in October of 2014. It was shortly after that. Uh, I was still, you know, drinking. I didn't have drugs there. Um, but I was drinking and I was drinking the way I like to drink and I wasn't working yet. And it took, Gosh, it took maybe three weeks for everything to blow up. And it was over me hiding cigarettes. Um, But it was just, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, that relationship was done and it should have been done long before. Um, But, you know, he he kind of he hit his he hit his limit with my behavior. And um, I hit my limit with what I was willing to put myself through and what I was willing to tolerate. And so. My mom lives in California, so I was about an hour away from my mom. So I loaded up just a bag in my little Honda Civic, and I left my new California house where I just moved all the furniture and the dogs and the life and went to my mom's. And, um, of course, my mom was happy to have me and probably really relieved that that whole thing was hopefully over. And it, it took a few months for it to be over, over, but in that time... Um, I had just sold the house. I made a big chunk of money. You know, I, I split, I gave some to him because it, you know, we were a couple. Um, so I had about $38,000 at my disposal, just in my checking account. I had some debt. I owed the IRS money. I could have paid those things off. And, um, instead I, I helped my mom out a little bit. I did get a job for a couple days, but it took me five months to drink $38,000. You know, we had one good Christmas in there. I moved in, in October of 2014 and, um, I was broke, broke, broke by, um, by March of 2015. Um, like, you know, I went from 
it was at my mom's house that I I would wake up in the morning and I would have coffee with her, except she had coffee and I had a coffee cup with Tito's in it. And I know, I mean, there were several times where she came to me and she said, like, you know, you know, you have a problem, right? And I was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know, I just don't care. Um, so I, I got really toxic then. Um, I didn't know how to be an adult. I didn't know how to, I was so codependent. Like, I didn't know how to function, um, without the structure of trying to please someone. I didn't know who I was or what I wanted or what I was going to do. So, um, yeah, I'd lived on my mom's couch for five months. I was extremely drunk the entire time. I had a job in Temecula, California. I would drive, I would get drunk all day, take naps slash pass out during the day. And then I would drive, um, on a dark windy road to Temecula and I cocktailed there and I drank while I worked there and I did make one friend there and, uh, I was really glad to have a friend and sometimes I would stay with her and she lived with her parents as well. Sometimes I would stay with her so that I didn't have to drive all the way home. And then um, that job only lasted like three months. There's like a nightclub type thing. But yeah, I, I went and I hung out with her one night and she was hanging out with friends and they decided to to do some meth. And I tried a tiny bit and I hadn't really messed with that in in years except well I don't want to say I hadn't done it at all but I I knew that it wasn't a good thing because I was already out of control with the alcohol so after deciding to put that into my body I decided to distance myself from her I you know quit the job yeah then I was just kind of pinching pennies together so that I could buy four logos because that was kind of the best bang for my buck because I needed to drink every day I was shaking if I didn't drink by that point I had a friend in Vegas who was, you know, kind of shocked with the divorce and he and I were kind of commiserating over the phone. And after a little bit of that, he kind of was like, get your head out of your ass, get back to Vegas. I'll help you get on your feet. You know, that sound, that sounded like the solution. Like, you know, living on my mom's couch was the problem. Being able to drink all day was the problem. Not having a job was the problem. So I jumped in my little Honda Civic and I went down there and I instantly latched onto him. So this man, like, blindsided by a divorce, um, probably not in a very healthy men mental state either. You know, he may have had some good intentions, but also I think he just didn't want to be alone in that time. And um, like I said, I, I latched right on. Um, he was not a big fan of how much I drank because I would drink first thing in the morning. So I kind of tried to reel it in for his approval. So I found someone else to kind of tell me how to be and how to live. I got a job and I did not like that job. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to my old job, but between, you know, having the, they were apprehensive between, you know, just having broken up after 11 years with, you know, a guy that was in a motorcycle club and, and my behavior. My, I mean, I was like sleeping in my car sometimes. I think I slept in a booth one time because, you know, I left a somewhat together shit show and I came back not put together whatsoever um so my fall from grace I mean five months is pretty much what it takes it's my breaking point yeah I'm in Vegas I'm working I'm dating this guy I say we're dating and he says we're just friends and hanging out and I'm you know just kind of forcing my will like I you know I'm 
decided in my mind that I can, you know, set my mind to anything and I can make it happen. So I just am fully latched on. He's not in the same place. Um, so we party, we have some fun. We do move in together. And yeah, I, there was times that during that time where I didn't, um, I didn't work and I hid my drinking and I would drink, but then go to the gym. I would like make him food and try to hide the fact that I was like drunk or I was, you know, high on Coke and drunk. And, um, yeah, I just repeated that same cycle, but fortunately it didn't go on for too long. Um, you know, he decided that he was done and ready to move on. And I mean, I was devastated, like completely devastated. And I don't think that it was entirely because I was devastated about that relationship. I think I never healed from the previous one. I never dealt with those feelings because I just stuffed them and replaced them. So the big brunt of um, of my abandonment issues and my, you know, feeling of loss came out on this, on this guy. And, um, it was, it was ugly. So he left and, uh, went on to pursue what was for him. And I had these two dogs. I had this condo and I remember having a bottle. I had a bottle of, vodka on the counter and I remember opening it in the morning and I remember pouring myself a drink and it had been maybe two years since I had like let myself drink the way I drank at my mom's and I remember just the fuck it and like I just I decided that I was gonna drink in the morning like I purposely thought like I need to change the way I think and the way I feel and I went for it and um, I started dating somebody else right away. He was a really, really good guy. He was very kind, very loving. He kind of came in to save the day and I was just still a user. I was still really damaged. I tried to push him away, but he, you know, was willing to kind of stick through that. And so we ended up moving in together. We ended up not buying a house, but renting a house. We had a pool. We had a life. He has a great family. Um, he was willing to put up with my shit and he drank like me. This guy proposes and there's talk of like kids and, you know, I'm kind of, I'm feeling like this could be a thing. Like this could be my chance to be somebody other than who I've been, but I'm miserable in my drinking. Like I'm going through a liter of Tito's a day and I'm starting to get a little bit desperate. Um, you know, I'm realizing that I don't want to drink like I do, but I can't not. Like we went on a family vacation with his family to Tahoe. We went to Tahoe every summer. I think I went two or three and um, everybody wanted to go meet for breakfast and I woke up and I didn't have a drink first and they didn't serve alcohol at the place that we were at. And everybody saw how bad I was shaking and how sick I was. And I had to actually leave and walk down the road and find a bar and have a couple shots of vodka so that I could go and eat breakfast with the family. I would drink every single morning before work. Like I started the shower. I worked um, the time that we were together. I worked the day shift, so I worked 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., so I would start the shower, and while that was warming up, I would go out and I would pour myself, 
you know, a couple shots of Tito's just so that I could start my day. And I would do a couple bumps of cocaine so that I could start my day. And it wasn't ever like big old long lines. I didn't really think of myself as having a problem because it was just, just a little bit. Like it just helped me get up and going somewhere. I think it was 2019. I got a call at work. T and I were then engaged and um, I got a call at work that he had called an ambulance. He thought he was having a stroke and I worked four minutes away. So I rushed home. I did a bump. I did a shot. And then I rushed home so that I could ride in the ambulance with him and um, get to St. Rose Hospital. And, you know, I make sure like he's way out of it. Um, his blood pressure was out of control. I would like made sure that I told the doctors like he has a huge drinking problem. Like he's going to have an issue. Like he's going to go into DTs if you don't treat that. And he didn't want them to know that he probably didn't want his parents to know that, but I just, I didn't want them to know anything except for that. Like that was important. Um, so he was in the hospital for three or four days. I really don't know, but me sitting in the hospital with him, like I refused to leave his side. I did not go home. Like once he was in a hospital room, but I didn't want to tell the doctors or the nurses that I was going through D DTs. Like I was violently ill sitting there with him. So like I called his brother and asked him to bring me just a coffee, you know, a to-go coffee cup, a thermos full of vodka so that I could get through. And that was kind of when I recognized how bad I was. Like, that's where I recognized that I'm, I'm not okay. And, um, we got home from the hospital and he had meds to help with the DTs because he was not allowed to drink. It was his blood pressure. He, um, was, I didn't know he was supposed to be on blood pressure meds, but yeah, his blood pressure had just gotten out of control. So he started, you know, managing that. Ultimately, he transitioned back into drinking. But during that time where he couldn't drink, I started drinking in the closet, literally. Like I'm in a closet right now, but I'm doing something good. But then I was in a closet and I had my bottle of Tito's like hidden. And, um, I kind of reached out to a couple people in my friend's circle. One of my friends um, is a nurse, Lynn, and she just said, whatever you do, don't go cold turkey. Alcohol can kill you if you quit drinking cold turkey. So I started measuring my shots. So I was doing, you know, about two ounces every hour. And that didn't get me drunk. That was just so that I could maintain. And I was able to do that for like a day or two. But then I would just go in and just chug on the bottle. And um, I don't know how long it took. I don't know how long it took for me to just actually get help, but it felt like it was about a year of me saying, like, this is out of control, like, I need to stop, and I can't. You know, I would wake up in the morning and tell myself, like, I'm not going to take the first drink today, and I had no ability to not take the first drink, and the first drink just led to all the drinks, and every single day, it was tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to stop tomorrow, I'm going to do something tomorrow, and there was a lot of tomorrows that came and went, and I didn't do anything different. I did about 100 bucks a day of Coke, and I drank, you know, a half a gallon of Tito's, and, uh, you know, I didn't lose my job, like, I, I would get suspended, um, I hit some curbs, um, you know, I I stopped contributing to bills pretty early on and just spent my money on alcohol and drugs and the boyfriend paid the bills. I was just, I was kind of a user and 
yeah, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was really just surviving and I was selfish and I was self-centered and I really didn't see it that way. Um, so June of 2019, I've had enough. I've had enough of life. There were many times where I just wanted to either be able to stop or to die. So I got out my insurance card because I still had health insurance and I called the number on the back, the mental health services on the back of my, of my insurance card. And, uh, I was directed to Nevada behavioral health. So, um, Nevada behavioral health brought me in for an assessment. I had to drink excessively just to get into this assessment because I was terrified. So I meet the guy, Ricardo. I'll never forget Ricardo. He seemed like such an asshole. So I meet, I meet Ricardo and he's asking me all these questions and I'm hardly honest, just trying to just kind of glaze over the top um, of what I think that he needs to know. And he's like, well, yeah, you've got advanced alcoholism. Like you're, I don't remember the term that he used, but he said, I really think that you need um, inpatient treatment. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am not that bad. Like, I don't need to go inpatient. I just need help stopping. So um, I will mention, though, that a friend of mine, um, a, a fellow bartender who also drank like me, had reached out a couple weeks before and told me that she was going to detox. She said, I'm not quitting forever, but I'm going just so I can get a handle on this. And that planted like the little seed in my brain. And that's what brought me to call the number on my insurance card. So I definitely don't want to leave that out because I I don't think I would be here if it hadn't been for her sharing that she took that step. So you know who you are. I hope you hear this. You're amazing. Thank you. So I am. I'm in my assessment and I think I know better. And I think that I'm better than, you know, the person who does this for a living thinks I am. So I'm like, what can I do? That's just like the minimum. Just, you know, I just need to stop. So he sends me to Monte Vista for a detox. And Monte Vista is, Monte Vista is the same hospital that I was hospitalized at when I was 13 for anxiety and depression. And now here I am 35, 36, maybe just turned 36. And June 25th, 2019, I am back in Monte Vista Hospital, except this time I'm there for um, chronic alcoholism. Um, The day I was going to detox, I did as much cocaine as I could. And I just, I pounded vodka. And I remember um, that song, Don't Let Me Down by uh, the Chainsmokers. Um, I was playing that song, like I played it in my car and I was playing it at work. You know, I was just really trying to hype myself up because it's terrifying. Like alcohol was my one constant in my adult life. Like that was the one best friend. Like Uncle Tito was, you know, always there for me. So it was terrifying, the thought of separating myself from this thing. But also it just felt like I I had to do it. I could not go on the way that I was living. I couldn't. I either wanted to die or I wanted to stop, like I said. So I got home from work. I told my fiance, you know, I'm probably going to fight you. Don't let me fight. Don't let me back out. You know, just get me there and don't let me change my mind because I will. And I don't remember getting there. My blood alcohol content was obscene, near death. 
I wish I could remember the number. It's not on my records, um, but just for the story's sake, like I, I believe it was, it's like a point four. Like they said, it was a miracle that I survived because, um, yeah, my liver enzymes, your liver enzymes, which I never thought of, never even thought about my liver. Um, sometimes I felt like it might be hurting. Your liver enzymes should be in the high teens. It should be like a 16, 17, 18. My liver enzymes were in the high 400s. I did not have liver disease. I did not have cirrhosis yet. Um, But I was on my way. There's definitely so many times where I just, I drank so much that I could easily have not woken up. And when I did wake up, I felt like death. And the only thing that felt better was to drink more. So, so I wake up at detox and I feel miserable and I feel terrified and I feel like this was a mistake and I'm questioning everything and I'm not as bad as these people that are around me and I'm judging everyone and I'm, you know, crawling out of my skin and they're like checking my, you know, they're, they're checking like my heart rate and my blood pressure, like every 15 minutes, like it just so uncomfortable. Um, and I'm still not taking any accountability. I'm not, looking at the fact that I got myself there. I'm in detox and I start talking to people and they're kind of, they're like, yeah, this is my third time here. Yeah, this is my fifth time here. And I'm like, wait, so this doesn't work, right? Like you have to come back. Like, why, why'd you have to come back? Like, I'm thinking this is my cure-all. Like, I'm going to come into detox. I'm going to go out and I'm not going to drink for, you know, six months. And then I'm going to be able to just drink it family functions and, you know, drink on holidays and special occasions. And I'm going to be able to toast at my wedding. And like, this is my unrealistic expectation that I've played out. Like I have this picture in my mind and people are mentioning, like, you can never drink again. And I'm like, yeah, you can never drink again. Like I'm going to drink again. I'm just not going to drink like this because then I'm going to know better. Um, while I was in there, I went to there's a, you know, they have meetings, they bring meetings in there. And there was a meeting in the cafeteria. So I went to that, an AA meeting. And the guy that was running the meeting was like, yeah, I, I went to, um, I went to detox here. And I, you know, I was in treatment here. And so now I like to come back and help other people, you know, get sober. And in my head, I was judging him and thinking, like, what a loser. Like, it's like eight at night. Like, what is, what's this dude doing? Like, he has no life. He just, this is what he does. <laughs> oh, yes, that was my, that was my first experience with AA. Um, before that, in the bar, me and my Sunday regulars, we called ourselves AA Alcoholics Alotomous. And we called people who went to AA quitters and uh, we thought we were hilarious. So I got out of detox and part of my aftercare was um, IOP, intensive outpatient treatment. So I've committed to this. It's uh, three three hours a day, three days a week. And um, they put me on a lot of meds right when I got out of detox, Xanax. I don't, I don't do meds. I don't do pills. It, just does not work for me. Um, so I went to a psychiatrist thinking that I would have talk therapy. Um, that was not the case. They just prescribed me a bunch of things. So um, I immediately worked on weaning myself off of those. Um, I think I was medically assisted weaning off, but I was not willing to take those things. I did go to IOP for about eight or eight or nine months. 
And in intensive outpatient treatment, you learn about your ism. You learn about your your brain and why you do the things you do. Um, so it's it's a deterrent, but it wasn't necessarily the support that I needed. But the people that were in there, there was a pretty rough crew. Like the people that that went to my program, um, a lot of them lived in sober living. Um, there in Las Vegas. Um, I once again latched onto the wrong people. They did get me to meetings, but I latched onto the trouble. Things at home were not good. I could not stand to be in my house once I was sober. I couldn't stand my then fiance once I was sober. I felt guilt, shame, remorse, and I felt like zero attraction. I felt like I used him to provide myself with a cushy life and doing that drunk it was easy but doing it sober I I couldn't really do it and um I wasn't willing to stick it out to find out if we could have made it through that um there was just there was too much so I got out of detox in June and I moved out in September um, I moved into my best friend Candy's house. I moved in with Johnny and Candy. Candy has been my rock for years and years. She's loved me through good, bad, ugly, thick, thin. Um, when I was living in that condo after that second breakup, she really pushed me just to, you know, she lived right around the corner and she pushed me to just, you know, come over to, you know, just to come back to life because I was really just working and walking my dogs. I didn't have any motivation to do anything but drink so um i am forever grateful to her she's she's definitely you know she's half my heart but i move into johnny and candy's and you know i'm doing my detox thing and i'm or my uh outpatient thing and i'm working and kind of just i went right back to the bar like i went right back to working but i didn't drink I had um, other alcoholics numbers that I I would just text them, you know, good morning, or I would, you know, just, I would do what I could do, Um, but I didn't drink. I was determined not to go through that whole detox process again, and I felt pretty good until about month three, and I was really squirrely. I was like, okay, I'm not drinking, but I don't feel better. I don't. I don't know how to live like this. Like there was no relief. It was just, you know, alcohol was my solution. And you take that away. And then I kind of, you know, cleared out the fog that I was in, like that heavy weight that I always carried from being drunk. Uh, but once that was gone, all my shit that I carried around, like all my discomfort and, you know, the me that I've been running from since I was 12 years old was like front and center. And I did not know how. I didn't know how to live with that. So I did reach out. There was a woman in a meeting and I asked her to be my sponsor. She was kind of loud and outspoken and, you know, kind of wild. And so I was like, okay, she looks like she can still have fun and be sober. Like that's, that's what I want. So they say when you're looking for a sponsor, you know, to find someone who has what you want. So we hit it off right away. Um, I was really active in meetings. I went to, you know, I just said, yes, I went to meetings all over town. I kind of, you know, joined up with some really good gals that, that walked me through. There was some negativity there, 
while I was getting sober in Vegas. Um, you know, I, I made some poor choices in sobriety. You know, I didn't drink, but emotionally I was not sober. I was like running around with someone from the program for a short time. And that was really, really toxic. He was narcissistic. I put myself in a lot of danger. So, and you know, like I put him in danger because he stopped focusing on his recovery and focusing on me. So, uh, yeah. So back to my first sponsor, I'm working with my sponsor. I'm taking some steps. I'm really still not connected in meetings. Like I kind of figured out what people wanted to hear. Like I would listen to what other people shared and I was like, okay, like I get it. I get how to, you know, how to give them what they want. So, so I do that. I just kind of regurgitate good things that I heard and people are just so proud of me and they're giving me hugs. And then, um, around rolls May, May of 2020. So the world has been shut down for a couple months. I'm living in the casita in Johnny and Candy's backyard. I finally, you know, gotten away from the toxic, you know, I set boundaries. I stuck to them. I'm just a girl living in her best friend's backyard and I'm not going to meetings and I'm not really calling my sponsor. I'm not praying. I'm not meditating. I'm not doing any of the things that kind of helped me stay sober for that 11 months. I'm not really thinking about what it was like just the June before, you know, the desperation and the hopelessness. I'm thinking I'm bored and I'm lonely. And I'm thinking, you know, I reach out to an old guy friend from, um, Bullhead City. He had kind of been trying to get a hold of me and I was just kind of blowing him off. So I ended up texting him or giving him a call and we reconnected. You know, we were talking and he said, you know, when the world opens back up, you should definitely come in here. And I'm like, well, why wait till then? You know, nobody really determines what's essential. Like it's essential to me that I go up there. And so there's my, you know, I'm not drinking yet, but there's my selfish self-centered and I kind of start talking to him about how you know I've been sober but I would kind of like to to try drinking again and he doesn't know how to deal with that so I've you know I'm just setting up my relapse like I decided before it happened that it was going to happen um so yeah May of 2020 I fly up to Seattle Washington and I hang out with this old friend. You know, we were friends for 20 years, but we didn't talk during that 20 years, but every, you know, three to five years. And when you talk to somebody then, like, that's just the good stuff, right? You just get the good parts of a person. Um, So not taking away from our friendship, but we weren't like day to day, you know, seeing the good, bad, and, and ugly of each other. So we hit it off while I was visiting. I went back to Vegas, talked to Candy and Johnny, packed up my shit and um moved to Linwood, Washington. And um the day I got there, um I have a Boston Terrier. He has a Boston Terrier. Uh they did not get along. So my Boston had just gotten into a huge fight with her littermate sister Penelope and Penelope lost her eye and I had to leave well I had to leave one with my ex 
the ex-fiance and he asked if he could have Penelope because she was much sweeter to him than my little feisty Luna. So I've got this dog. She's an angry little thing. So we try to introduce the dogs. His dog, Opie, was the sweetest boy, but definitely they both wanted to be the boss. So they start fighting and I'm instantly ready to drink. So like right away, I'm noticing that like I have not thought this through. And I just want to escape. I just want to feel different. I'm just overwhelmed. I can't, like, I'm in a new state. I'm clear far away from everyone. I only know him, and I'm ready to drink. My dog, Our dogs don't get along. I don't know how we're going to live in a 600-square-foot apartment. So I drank that day, and I woke up the next morning, and I snuck some of his whiskey, even though I told myself that I know better, and I'm not going to. I told myself that I wasn't going to drink like I drank before. Even though what I learned before was that once you're a pickle, you could never be a cucumber again. But I forgot about all of that. I forgot about how bad it was. And I just, I thought it would be different because I wanted it to be different. It was not different. It was not. Um, You know, if I was going to drink a glass of wine, I made sure I had two or three bottles of wine. I was blacking out right away. Um... I moved there June of 2020, and we got married August of 2020. Um, during that time, like, we got married by a waterfall on a hike. And um, walking out from the wedding, he fell 50 feet off of a cliff. He's fine. Like, he, you know, got scraped up, and it was really scary. But, yeah, I think because of all the Jameson that was drank, down where we had the ceremony his body was loose and he wasn't trying to brace I don't know but it was right like right when that happened where I just everything set in like you fucked up like you are making horrible choices for your life um there's so much shame in the relapse and there was shame in recognizing that like me and this person didn't get along very well um you know I'm pretty positive person, um, pretty happy-go-lucky for the most part. And um, he's a little more down-to-earth, realistic, just on a different, just on a different vibration, we'll say. We just were not compatible. I mean, we both like to hike, but aside from that, like, you know, he worked at night. I worked earlier. Like, we just, we were on totally different so we we're trying to trying to mesh these two lives that weren't supposed to be meshed, I think. And I really resented him. I resented myself. And in my blackouts, I was really horrible to him. I don't remember, but I've heard all about it. You know, I hated being up there. I just wanted to go back to Vegas. Like, I hated my choices. I hated myself. Um, in my blackouts, I was also reaching out to my mom and threatening suicide, basically, so I knew I needed to do something. So the my then husband was telling me, like, you need to quit drinking. And I'm not wanting to let go. Like, I know it's so much better on the other side, but I'm just not willing to let go. So I, I finally work up the courage. And in November of 2020, I go to a meeting. And I went every day. We had shut down. So that's an important part of the story. Um, November of 2020, we had our second, our second shutdown. So I should include um, November of 2020, second shutdown. 
I had to work on the last day. I think it was a Tuesday. And um, it was the last day that we could serve. And I just had this, like, the world is ending feeling. And I'm like, like, I'm not going to be able to come to work. Like, that's where my socialization is. Like, I'm going to be in that apartment. The dogs are, like, tied up at opposite ends of the living room. I'm just going to, I'm going to be home and he's going to be my only contact with the world. Like this, this is messed up. Like I can't do this. I was really, really, I was bad to him. And I I think it was, you know, mostly because of my choices. Cause I just knew that I was doing the opposite of what I needed to be doing. So yeah, I, uh, I knew then that I just needed to get to AA I knew that that was the one place like that's that that was the last place because if I stayed at home during that shutdown and I if I drank the way that I drank um I don't think that I would have continued living. I think I would have seen just one way out and it was not it was not the way I wanted to go. So the un- only other option for me was AA. So I went to a meeting and it felt uncomfortable and it felt awkward. And I went the next day and I went the next day and was going to meetings through November. Um, the then husband and I had a trip planned um, to go to Vegas. And so um, we go to Vegas and that's the first time I've drank in front of people. Um, I relapsed while we were there. I was going to the bar and getting, I was out with my ex-father-in-law and my ex-husband's family and friends. We went to Bullhead for a couple of days and that's where I drank. I was getting everybody refills on their drinks and I was having a virgin Bloody Mary. And then one time while going to get refills, I ended up just getting a double for myself. And then I, I managed to say something to where I was like, Hey, I'm drinking. And he asked, are you sure? Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'll just get back to it when we get home. So that trip, I maintained fairly well. But once we got back to Vegas and I was drinking with my friends, you know, there's no pictures of my ex-husband. Like I just, I was in the zone and I didn't really get out of control. I didn't, you know, I just internally, I was, I was struggling. So then fly back to Seattle. And as soon as I got back, I just wanted to get into a meeting. I wanted to tell on myself and I wanted to get to work. So, um, I got back and my first meeting was December 10th, 2020, where I went in ready, ready to not live the way that I had been living. Um, right after that, I asked a woman to sponsor me. I had seen her before, before I had relapsed that second time. And um, she seemed really tough. She seemed pretty intimidating and she seemed really serious about her recovery. And I really wanted that. I didn't want the have fun and I didn't want the, you know, messing around. I wanted, I wanted the straight, hard, you know, dig deep sobriety. I wanted recovery. So, um, so I started working with her by February. My marriage was over. You know, we fought, uh, we fought about everything, but once I wasn't drinking, um, I didn't really express myself. Like I didn't, speak up when stuff drove me nuts but it was a lot of like passive aggressive disrespect so yeah he um we were in a fight one morning and I said I think that we need therapy 
And that was like my big out. That was my big excuse of like, oh, well, he's not willing to work on this. And he said, I think we need a divorce. And I felt so much relief. Like I didn't want to be the bad guy. I didn't want to hurt him. But being with him was hurting him. Like living like that was damaging to both of us. But when he said, I, you know, I think we need a divorce. I said, I think you're right. So we kind of just came up with, you know, we'll figure it out in the coming weeks. Um, But we separated at that time. So I was just kind of going through my options. But this time, I'm not just getting an idea and jumping right to it. I have a sponsor. I have a home group. I have service positions. um, I'm working steps. It was only two months in, but I was relentless, like gratitude list in the morning, five things I did for my recovery, you know, at night. And just that was, I put all of my energy into my recovery. I stopped worrying about everything else. And it was, it was my saving grace because I made it through that divorce without getting drunk. So it turned out I was going to move out. I was looking for a place. I had money saved and, um, he had a friend who had a house he was going to rent out. We were actually planning to move into the house. But then, you know, he said, I think I'm going to find a roommate and just move in there myself. You know, I want to have a shop and a, do- you know, a yard for the dog and blah, blah, blah. And so that was the plan. But the place wasn't going to be available until June. And we're in February. So, you know, we agree that we're going to just coexist in this 600 square foot garage conversion apartment until he can move out now that was the hard part really that was a really painful time you know knowing that the situation wasn't right for me but seeing that somebody else was hurting doing my best to just focus on myself doing my best to set and hold boundaries you know doing my best to still treat him with like love and respect and like a person that I've loved for 20 years and still not be a doormat. You know, I didn't really know how to have boundaries. It was like, I'm either a doormat or I'm a brick wall. And so I really tried to find a middle ground and I had to just, you know, I, I had to seek love. So I, during that time, started listening to um, the teachings of Ramdas, And I started listening to a lot of Abraham Hicks. And I was reading a whole lot of books. And... Come uh, June, he kind of tried to say that he wasn't going to move out. And I got to hold a boundary and say, you cannot stay here. I have a lease. This is my place now. So you do have to move out Um, because I did not want, you know, I lived on the couch and he lived in the room and it was, it was a really painfully uncomfortable situation for four months. So he, um, He did move out, but the day he moved out, there was a great big fight. I stopped feeling safe. So I set a big boundary of, you know, for my space and I held it. And, um, while that continued to be toxic until I drew a firm line, you know, that was the smartest thing that I did next to getting sober was just separating myself, you know, eliminating. I, in a lot of my breakups, there was a whole lot of false hope. There was a lot of things getting dragged on to where, you know, thinking that they would rekindle. And I did not want to, I didn't want to do what 
I felt had been done to me. I didn't want to be the person that was like, oh, you're hurting. Let me try to make you feel better. So in the most loving way that I knew how, I just worked on loving myself. And I was doing really intense work. And I was, you know, doing my steps, like I said, and um, really getting to know myself. Once he moved out, like I didn't get a TV for, I don't know, it was like three or four months or something. But I just meditated and I read. Um, Around that time, it was around the time that we split that I just met my now husband you know, I made it clear that I was not in a space to date or entertain or anything like that. So um, he was just a customer at the bar, the coach at the college right behind the bar that I worked at. So him being around was nice, but it was, it felt really good to say like, I'm just working on myself right now. So yeah, I think I finished my steps in, I don't want to say finished, but I took my 12th step and started raising my hand to work with other women in May, May of 2021 and started dating Scott in June. We went on a date and it was definitely different than what I thought it would be like because I was different than I had ever been surrendering to and conceding to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, that my choices have determined my outcomes, um, that I've been driven by my ego and my self-centeredness and, you know, being a martyr and thinking that I'm doing good for other people when really I'm either people-pleasing or I'm just, I'm out to get what I want. And there might be some good consequences for you along the way. Just really getting to know my part, like my, my side of the street, like recognizing what my actions have brought about in my life. Like it brought this huge change and I got to show up as the person that I wanted to be, not that I thought somebody else wanted me to be. Like it was the first time in my life that I actually had an idea of like who I was and um you know in doing my step work I also had an ideals list where you really look at your past relationships and then you have an idea of the future for the future of like what am I willing to accept what am I not willing to accept like what values are of the utmost importance to me and before it was really just what can I get from you or what can I give to you what how are you going to make me feel? Um, how am I going to feel about myself while I'm with you? And this wasn't that. Like this, you know, we took things slow at first and really just felt each other out and asked each other questions and just got to know each other. And it was, well, it was the best thing. It's the best thing I did besides getting sober was, you know, getting to know Scott and falling in love and getting married. So fast forward to, it was July 30th of 2022. We got married uh, in his parents' backyard. And this was amazing because we had, uh, we had both like our whole family. I was really, I mean, there was a couple people that were missing. There was one, you know, really big person that was missing, um, but he was there in my heart. Yeah, we had 
almost everybody there, which I was blown away because I always felt, you know, through, through my twenties and my early thirties, I kind of felt like part of my family had rejected me when in reality I had rejected them like through my projecting. Like I really, I thought that they didn't want me around or that they, that they didn't approve of me, but I wasn't giving them that chance. Like I didn't even give them the opportunity. I just withdrew myself from my family. So having everybody there um, was magical. And I love his family. Like they accepted me right away as one of their own. It's been, it's been quite a trip. Um, So a week before our wedding, you know, there's a lot of planning and with family flying in and driving in from out of state and from, you know, the whole west side of the country. Um, Scott got a job offer from uh, Texas A&M Corpus Christi. So I had been to Corpus in like 2016 and 17 because one of the guys I dated had he grew up here and his family's from here. And there was big talk of he and I moving down here. So um, I'd spent a little bit of time here and I was, you know, when he said, what do you think about Corpus Christi? I said, I almost moved there. Let's do it. So not only were we now planning, you know, a hundred person wedding, but we're also figuring out where we're going to move, when we're going to move, you know, I'm leaving my job that I love. I've got amazing coworkers, amazing, you know, my bosses are amazing. And I love my, you know, I love my regulars, my cabin cronies, you know, and the people at the bulldog. And so it was, it was a big choice, but you know, I prayed on it. I meditated on it. He and I talked on it and it just, it seemed, it seemed right for the advancement, you know, for the next step in his career. He went from being, you know, the head coach at a junior college for 10 years to, uh, the pitching coach at a division one college. So this is just a step in the right direction, you know, for him to get into D one baseball. So, so we got married and then we spent three weeks packing and arranging and saying our see soons. And then we moved to Corpus and this is where the podcast was born because, you know, in the time where I didn't quite have a job and I know that I have like this message and I have this desire to help other people, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be on a stage or if it was going to be in a book or if it was going to be on a blog, but I just knew that like, there's so much more that I didn't include in this story, like in, you know, in, in this one show, but I have a, uh, I have a lot of experience in some really rocky parts of life and I made it out and I can look back at it lovingly and go, wow, like I chose that. And now I get to choose differently. Like now I don't, you know, I can catch when I'm judging or I can catch when I'm self-seeking and I can turn it over. Like I have a power greater than myself that, you know, is the director of my life. Like my ego is not running my show. I don't have to react to everything that comes into my space. I'm able to, you know, respond. And um, yeah, I'm able to choose differently today. I don't always have great days, but I definitely have tools because of the work that I've done. I have tools so that I know how to deal with life on life's terms. And um sharing this story with you is just another one of those tools because 
I just, yeah, my story can benefit others. Like that's, that's in the, the AA promises. That's in the ninth step promises. And I fully believe that. Like, I don't regret the past and I don't wish to shut the door on it because I can see how my experience can benefit others. So, um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stories from that story that I'll get to tell you over time, but that's the great big nutshell of it. So thank you for letting me share. And, um, yeah, please feel free to, to email me or to comment with any questions or, yeah, I don't want to say concerns. There's plenty to be concerned about, but everything did turn out great. So um, once again, thank you for being here. This podcast project has my heart on fire. So if you're listening, thank you.